Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube page. We continue with the Class of 99 with one of the most controversial films as well as one of the most anticipated films of the year. It is the final film in the career of Stanley Kubrick. And for that reason, among many others, it probably came with a little bit more controversy um, and heat than uh, was probably, will probably been normally the case for a Kubrick film um, for a lot of reasons that uh, we will be discussing today. Uh, Join me today in discussing it is writer-director Christopher D'Annunzio. Chris, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, man. Appreciate it. So I remember I this this was easily one of the movies I was looking most forward to in 1999. I had begun my Kubrick um, fascination by the time the first teaser came out uh, with uh, the mirror scene where Tom and Nicole are um, in front of the n- mirror. You have Chris Isaac's "Baby Did Bad Bad Thing" playing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that came out shortly before uh, Kubrick passed away in March of 1999. And uh, <clears throat> I I just remember um, a big part of the buildup was how long it had taken for the movie to come out. Because they had, not only was it Kubrick's first movie since Full Metal Jacket in 87, but this was a long shoot. Like, they had started filming in 1996, and uh, it it went on for a long time. And uh, Kubrick kept cutting and cutting and cutting. And uh, when he passed away, uh, there was a lot of questions as to how complete the movie was. And Kubrick, being the, complete, being the perfectionist he was, he was well known for... Uh, cutting movies up until the last minute, including even past the time that the movie shows. Uh, yep, yep. Like when he, there was famously the ending of The Shining that got cut after the movie debuted. Uh, so I went to go see it opening day, uh, which was in July of 1999. And I remember that weekend being really really a big one for film geeks, especially at least in Atlanta, because of the fact that you had Eyes Wide Shut, which was going wide, and also that's when we got the Blair Witch Project. So we got two of the most anticipated movies of the year coming out the exact same weekend. I saw Eyes Wide Shut first. I saw that on Friday. Then on Monday, I went to go see Blair Witch Project, and I'll discuss that when I discuss that on the podcast. Um, what was your first experience, uh, with Eyes Wide Shot? You know, so it was, <clears throat> so I, I remember the ad. I remember that whole, they're always showing that one with, um, Nicole and Tom in the mirror. And then I think it was something that kind of just almost forgot it. And I can't remember, I ended up seeing it in a small theater somewhere. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if I waited till it was released. That, that is, that part is blurry to me. To me, but I remember the first time I saw that I was completely mesmerized in it. Yeah, and I remember it getting a lot of slack, mm-hmm. and I couldn't figure out why. I was like, "What? <laughs> it was Stanley Kubrick? It was awesome! I was like, it's intriguing." Um, 
but yeah, no, I remember it. I remember those ads being pumped out. Like you said, it was like 12 years between the film release. So yeah. big, it was a big deal. And, um, and I just, I just remember all that, all the buildup toward, towards it. And then I just remember being memorized, mesmerized by it after mm-hmm. seeing it. And then it kind of just almost, I liked it when I first saw it. And then I just, I seem to, re- you know, ever since it came out on like DVD, I seem to just review it every year. Yeah. It's just, it's just one of those films that yeah. I happen to always watch. Yeah, and I, I think the thing, I, I just, I remember when it came out, and my mother and I were big into movies. We did not see this one together. We did, see, we did go <laughs> see it opening day, though. Yeah. She went to one theater, I went to another, and we basically, I went right after work. So it's like, yeah. I, or sorry, actually, I was still in school at the time. So I went after classes that day. I was doing summer school. So yeah. I went right after classes. And then uh, she, you know, she went on her own to go see it. I, we both had very different reactions. I'm like you. I was mesmerized by the movie. But I yeah. think it also had to do with the fact that I read some reviews of it. So I kind of knew a little bit more of what to expect in terms of the tone of it. Yeah, so there you go. That's interesting. She, she didn't like it. I mean, she, she eventually came around a little bit on it, but... I think a big part, a big part of the reason, because it, it did okay in in theaters, but I think a big part of the reason that it was still divisive, and I think part of the reason it was still divisive is that you had that opening tease, you had that teaser, you had something where it's like, oh, this is gonna be sexy, this is gonna be, yeah. and people were basically expecting what we've you know come to think of as like you know, erotic thrillers and stuff like that. And that's obviously not what we got from Kubrick. And honestly, that's not like we were ever going to get that from Kubrick either. Yeah, I I remember that being a big critique, actually, was the people saying Nicole and Tom didn't have chemistry. And they're like, how can they not have chemistry? And I'm like, well, they shouldn't have had chemistry. That's kind of the point is how they were distance i was like that's actually pretty good mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you actually want that but i remember that being a big criticism and obviously uh this this orgy scene i i think for any american still it's kind of a topic or people are, are very yeah. se- sexual things is still taboo you can watch someone getting their head lobbed off mm-hmm. but if you, show, if you show some sex you're gonna get insanely different reactions and a lot of people oh, will, yeah. will and with violence just being movies, you do get the people who are completely against and all that, but you can find more reasoning with the violence than you can with the sex for some bizarre reason. Oh, yeah. And, and, uh, I, and really yeah, I mean, we, yeah, no, I mean, the the orgy scene was a big topic of discussion for several reasons, not, not just yeah. what you said about, you know, Americans and sex and how we view it as a society, but also the fact that they had to digitize characters over some of the more some of the thrusting yeah yeah in the orgy scene and i mean i i just remember reading roger (laughs) ebert review talking about it and basically likening it like when he likened it to the uh seeing austin powers where like i think it's the first one where elizabeth berkeley is like hiding behind all these things to hide the fact that she's naked yeah. Well, not not Elizabeth Berkeley, Elizabeth uh, Hurley, um, in the first Austin Powers, where it's like they're being coy on the nudity in in order to not be 
not have full frontal nudity. It's like they're hiding behind, you know, melons and flowers. Well, it's you actually and Elizabeth Berkeley because she was in Showgirls, right? Yeah, Elizabeth Berkeley was in Showgirls, yeah. I remember reading somewhere where Kubrick was actually watching Showgirls and, like, Basic Instincts to see how far pushed, like, sex and nudity yeah. to get rated R rating. Mm-hmm. That was pretty interesting. I was like, you know, good yeah. source material. Well, I remember, and the thing is, it's like one of the things I remember reading was that Kubrick was, Kubrick was kind of always interested in making not necessarily a porno, but at least a, a film about sex. Yeah. But I mean, uh, it would be more explicit. It would be, it would very much be an X-rayed film. And obviously that's the type of thing you like, ob- well, for partially because of the fact that the X isn't really a rating now, it's now in C-17. But yeah. you never really see it anymore. I mean, there's occasionally one that will come out, but it's rare. Um, and so black- showgirls kind of put the nail in the coffin as far as major studios doing it. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, I that that orgy scene, how they digitize it. It's like when when it when it eventually came out, it's like you didn't necessarily notice it, but it was also a bit of a distraction because if you were paying attention to the pre-release, you kind of knew that something had been done, and so it's like. Okay, it's like you have these random characters just like sit standing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, it kind of works in the context of that scene. Because, I think so. Because yeah. there's a whole a whole aspect of people just sitting around, standing around, and I think you, with his character, especially like that uh, before they come back out with the one of the guys who's who's the head of guy or whatever with the mask yeah. brings the other girl out and they go to grab him and the other girl tries to save him. Him just stopping, put and standing there seemed like a normal thing to do. Yeah, you know what I mean. From his character standpoint—that's what people were doing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and and the fact of the matter is that is that's such the way he shoots that scene. I mean, we're getting way ahead here, but the fact of the yeah. matter is, it's like we're also we're, and then of course the funny thing is, it's like I now have a box of Kubrick films from Warner Brothers that has the European cut that doesn't have those digitized characters at all. And it's still radar. So (laughs) so I think it's still radar. But nonetheless, I I can now watch that version. And it's like, okay, I don't really miss it. You know, whatever. But uh, (laughs) it's like, why was this an issue in the first place? But that's the thing, too, because, you know, it's like, it's, I don't know, it's it's such a moot point to even block it. Because, you know, it is the whole voyeuristic aspect and his point of view and going through and seeing this thing. And it's just like, it's kind of like, why? Yeah. (laughs) Well, and especially, especially during that sequence after the introduction of it with the chanting and the ritualistic aspect, as he's walking around, it's very clearly from his point of view. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, that's, you're kind of undercutting every, the whole aspect of this from Bill's point of view, where it's like, you're, you're just basically, um, you're, you're, basically just obstructing his point the character's point of view in that case exactly and that's what i was <laughs> i say like why why do anything because it is it, it is important to the character to be seeing what he's seeing and everything and even if it does come off a little like oh wow that's a little too much it's shocking this thing it's not shock for the sake of shock you know it is yeah. this kind of opening and finding and discovering this thing so it's like 
like it's part of the story. So don't cover it up. You're 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 mm-hmm. you're sending the story a little bit by doing that. Yeah. You know, it, there's a lot of films you see like that where there might be just sex between the couple or something like that, and they try to censor that because of nudity or something like that. And, it's, and it might be key to the, get the sex besides it just being a pleasurable thing as a way of people connecting to. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of films where they're using that as a device for these characters, for characters to connect or some sort of thing, you know, good talking a little pro- and generalized here, but it's always like, don't, don't do it. I get you, you have something against it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, so if, now if it was just a straight porno and it's just coming random and you're like, what the hell, where are X, you have to yeah. cut this. That. I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm yeah. like, we're here to tell a story. And, uh, you know, there's time and place for things. But, um, yeah, just to me, that always boggled my mind that I had to do it. But, again, it's the overreaction with, with nudity and mm-hmm. sexual things. It's like, so just calm down. It's natural. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> of course, there's the hilarious irony of the fact that it's like this movie, the only reason that uh, they ended up doing the digitization over was to avoid an NC-17 rating, and it's like, well, I mean, you know, why do children under 17 necessarily need to be watching this movie in the first place? Yeah. It's like, (laughs) I mean, and first of all, how many of them would really be interested in it? But uh, the the funniest thing is, I I remember I uh, I was actually working at a movie theater that summer, and it's like, I remember when... It, it was funny because that summer was interesting because you had this three-week week period where it was the South Park movie, then American yep. Pie, then Eyes Wide Shut. It was hilarious to see. And, I mean, part of this is because of the whole nature of what South Park is about. Yeah. The, the R-rated, like, that was one of the first times I got carded was for the <laughs> South Park movie. And I was 22, I was 21 at the time. So it's like I was plenty old enough to see it anyway. But yeah, it's hilarious yeah. that I was getting carded for that. I actually ended up not seeing American Pie in theaters just because at the time I wasn't that interested in it. And then two weeks later when I went to go see Eyes Wide Shut, I wasn't carded at all. And like we weren't we weren't <laughs> as we weren't as la- we were a little bit more lax in doing the R rated thing. And and carding for the R rated and making sure people weren't going in. You usually get away with it in animation too. You know what I mean? You usually yeah. get that kind of yeah, it's a cartoon. You know that, that <laughs> little you see on on TV. Sometimes you're always wondering like how they always seem to get away with, with that, that wrong joke or that little yeah. like that little gesture or something like that. Where if you know if it was in a regular TV show, people would be freaking preaching up the storm like why they did that. Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is a big part of the reason I think that the South Park rating got enforced a little bit more is because it was taking very pointed shots at the MPAA yeah. and their hypocrisy about violence versus language and all of that stuff. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, this, and it's <laughs> funny, like this was such a weird, like this. This summer of 99 was not like any other summer I really remember because there weren't really a lot of big action movies. Like there was so much as far as like dramas and stuff like that, dramas, comedies, all that stuff. Basically, the big action movies were kind of The Mummy and Phantom Menace. There wasn't really anything else. So it's like it didn't look like a typical summer. Yeah, that's right. I remember that old man, Phantom Menace, was just yeah. 
<laughs> I think part of that was because studios just wanted to get out of the way of Sam Mess because they thought it would just run roughshod over everything. I think I remember hearing a lot of stuff like that too. And that was yeah. one of those things where like the big monsters coming and it's kind of like, why set yourself up to fail? And I, I think <laughs> studios are pretty good at, at trying to look at things like look ahead. I mean, the thing is movie studios, when they get involved creatively, there usually seems to be a problem, but they're very smart business people in the sense where they, they, they can look ahead and see that and go, yeah. let's, Let's find this. Let's target this time, and let's get. Let's dominate over here. Let's. Let's. This is. Take, let's take that as a loss for whatever it is. And it would have been either. You know, either way. I, mean, I remember I had family and friends. I got to see Phantom Menace when it first came out. I had people like waiting in line for me. Yeah. You know, and it was like that. And when you see something like that, you're just like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <Back off. laughs> so when so going back to uh, Eyes Wide Shut. So mm-hmm. this is this is a film. Um, with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, they are a married couple, and I, I was, I was interested when you said earlier, and it's actually very correct. The more I think about it, that you know, when when you people were saying that it's like, oh, they don't have chemistry in the movie, and it's like, well, they're not really supposed to be, and you're yeah. right because of the fact that there is a distance through between them throughout the entire movie. And, and it is really crazy. only in that last scene of the movie where they have a real connection with one another. Yeah, it's really in there the whole time. And then it gets to that heightened and, and that's where the journey starts to split off when she starts to tell the story about yeah. the about the naval officer. Mm-hmm. And that's where kind of things get weird and, and Tom Cruise goes on to his little his little odyssey, his little journey there. But you can kind of tell there's still that that relationship of almost like that trap that people are afraid of the typical American family. You're going to work, you're doing that. Oh, they're kind of like on autopilot in a sense. They're going to the party. They got to do that, pay the respect, come here, you know? And <laughs> and you start to see, and even with that, you know, the him flirting with the girls flirting, mm-hmm. her, the, uh, the Hungarian guy, you know, there's still that little taste. <laughs> they're like, no, you know, and, and that kind of all just starts to snowball in and, and but yeah, and it's also why I, I won't jump ahead, but we'll get we'll get there. The last lines of the film, why I think it's so perfect. But we'll oh, get yeah. we'll get, yeah. get there. I don't want you jump. I want to stay in the beginning. But yeah, no, and it, and I remember that being a big criticism that there's no chemistry, and, and some people making a joke of it because they're married. And yeah. like, how can they be that? And I'm just like, what the hell were you watching? <laughs> <laughs> they were they were doing a good job. They shouldn't have been, they should be a divide. They should be a disconnect. Mm-hmm. And I think to more time, I think. I mean, I love both the performance in Yeah, I think they're yeah they're both fantastic. I mean, this is this is easily one of Nicole Kidman's best performances. Oh my gosh, she's so good. Um, I mean, the scene the scene where they're stoned and she's telling them about yes. the naval officer alone, like that that should have been like if she had been nominated for an Oscar, that would that should have been her Oscar clip. Like that was oh, so good. Oh, I love them. The way she delivered that, the way you could tell. You could get the motivations of why she was delivering it and why it was annoying him. And how you can read on both of their face, just the reactions to that. You see her, she's very knowing and doing and knowing what type of reaction she's going to get from Bill. And then you see the reaction on Bill's face. And so it's like you understand why when the call comes in that one of his patients has died, it's like, why he takes that why he feels like he needs to get out of the house yeah yeah exactly 
you know what else I love about that scene, by the way? The lighting. Yeah. I love how warm that tungsten type of look. They have that almost orange complexion. And then you see the kind of shots, the, the, the mixed lighting, actually. So you have that kind of orange tungsten lighting. It's very warm. It's very low-key, low light in the house. Then you see the shots, like when they, they'll show the, you know, outside, you see the window. And it's such an, almost an artificial, like, night blue. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes when they get close to a uh, a light, it almost becomes an almost daylight balance in the sense. There's one shot somewhere. I don't know if it was the first bedroom scene. There is one where you, you get this awesome kind of one part's kind of orange. You get a little bit of the light that too close to, and it, it gets kind of like a daylight balance. And then you can kind of see the blue in the background. Hmm. And I really love the use of like the color throughout, throughout the film, really. Oh yeah. The, the lighting in throughout the entire film is just, amazing and it's like the way he uses yeah the way he uses the christmas lights the way i mean it it's great because of the fact that you see you can tell that they're shooting on a set it's not actually new york but that really only adds to the atmosphere the the dreamlike atmosphere that he's uh building yep and i mean really it's that that makes sense because of the fact that he he is absolutely somebody who he has to control every aspect of it and the way he does it through the lighting is just so so brilliant and the way he uses the different christmas lights and stuff like that to sort of convey to really kind of reflect the emotions that the characters are going through at that time yeah, I, I, I just that's one of those things that I just adore of it. The whole throughout, like every scene, I just love the way the, like the lighting looks. It plays such a big, a big part for me. And I think that was one of the things they were doing. I forget the, the way they were processing the film, but they were using. I know a lot of like, I mean, you could see it too. Anytime they're in in like the room, um, his buddy's house where there's a pool table, like every available light's on. Yeah. You know, they're, so they're using all of those, and I believe they were using a couple of lights when they had a film. I know they were using like china balls, but it was like this kind of just very low lit, very kind of, and that again plays to the dreamy aspect. Is that kind of warm, fuzzy feeling? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's just a thing. I think it's just visually, it's a thing of beauty. Yeah, um, yeah, and so they they play a uh, married couple, and mm-hmm. we we see them first going to a Christmas party that uh, Sidney Pollock, who's one of his uh, patients, is hosting, and uh, we see. We we see uh, Bill and Alice, the characters, um, go through various uh, situations where they have people coming on to them, and then you see them sort of. They're sometimes they're quick on they're very quick on the uptake as far as what's happening, or at least Alice is. Bill seems a little bit more oblivious to a certain extent. Yeah, and I think that in going back to the room, like he, him trying to like when she's questioning him, yeah, he's like you know where she's she's trying to go with the conversation, but he's still mm-hmm. kind of like, what do you know? This is the patient, and he's just like, <laughs> yeah. like you know, trying to dig in there. I mean, but it's, it's fascinating hard. because it's like that's just not where his brain is, and yeah, like, his brain is not wired the same way that hers is, and so yeah. it he also takes you know it's also a very very sort of conservative view of, you know, the way couples interact and the way the way men and women view sex, the way is what yeah. Bill is what Bill is putting out there. And like Alice is like, 
no, you're not necessarily right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <Sure>. so, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's like, at, and so they have these, these interactions at the party and then you see them, that's where the, and then afterwards when they get home, that's where the mirror scene is, which is really not much longer than the yeah. scene from the teaser. And then you see them go about their day. And it's in the first scene too with the Christmas party. We're also introduced to I think it's Mandy, who's the who's yes, the, the, the dude that's yeah. ODing. She's like, I'll figure out what the hell it was, like a coke and heroin ball or something. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then also uh, Nick Nightingale, uh, Todd yes. Field's yeah. uh, pianist in the movie. So see, the, I love dialogue when he's talking with Nick and they just meet. It's just simple, but I don't know what it is. The pacing and the way they're delivering that. I could just sit there and I'm like, oh, look, it's so awesome. I don't know what it is because it's not, I mean, the, the pace of the film is very slow. The delivery yeah. is slow. And there's nothing that, but it's just, I don't know what it is. Like, that's one of those when I just start realizing, like, the dialogue. And I really like, I like the interaction between Nick and, uh, and Bill's character. Yeah, that's, that is interesting because of the fact that, I mean, so much, throughout so much of the movie, there's a lot of very deliberate pauses between mm-hmm. uh between lines of dialogue between uh somebody saying something and then the other person responding yeah and you know sometimes those responses are just repeating what the previous person said i mean you have the the scene where he goes to the the uh costumer and you know wow. he and like there's a lot of re- repetition between those in in that dialogue and yeah, the scene with uh, Nick and uh, Bill, and even even when they're in the uh, club later, um, yeah, it's very natural, flows very well. I mean, Sidney Pollock is the Sidney Pollock character is the same way. Yeah, Bill. yeah. Um, I mean, I you know, so it's like those characters have a little bit more closeness with him, and it's kind of ironic because of the fact that it's like those are the characters who are arguably going to put him in probably the most peril. Yeah. <laughs> as the movie goes on. And, uh, you know, then you have the scenes with Alice where it's like, yeah, in, in that first scene where they're getting ready for the party, it's, it's very, you know, there's some very standard, you know, husband, wife, uh, interaction there of gang, gang together. And then, as the as the film goes on, it's like that interaction gets less and less, and as it begins to get more and more intimate, into there's also this distance that comes in with yep. when it comes to the dialogue, and it's like I, it's it's funny I, that is that does feel like a very deliberate choice on Kubrick's part. Um, yeah, I'm sure it is. And <laughs> it, you know, That's of course, it would have to be. That can control so much. I mean, I know personally, me as a director, one of my things I'm more concerned about is pacing and beats of delivering lines. Yeah. So I can only imagine. Yeah. <laughs> it was all of that. Um, but also, you know, there was one thing what I like about the film is um, I'm, I'm forgetting the word. It's um, some philosopher had a term for it where it's um, you go through with Bill. And you're kind of with him. There's this voyeuristic aspect of it, but you don't necessarily feel empathy for him. Right. You're kind of just on this journey and you're almost experiencing things with him. And I think that's the mesmerizing factor I had when I first saw it because you're kind of there, like you don't, you don't 
Bill's fine. He's, he's, you know, you don't, you don't dislike him and you're not mad at him for what he's doing and you're not feeling too sad for him. Yeah. You're just kind of, okay, this is unfolding. And then you're just watching this whole thing. You're like, damn, this is taking a turn. (laughs) But you know, but it's an interesting thing because usually when you still have that, we're we're trying to, you know, the filmmakers are usually trying to make you feel some sort of empathy because it's that, that whole, you know, that thing you want, you want to to identify with the character you want someone you know you empathy is always something people are looking for right and you don't necessarily get that but you just you just kind of get on this journey you're just kind of with you're with bill and I, I think that's another cool aspect of the film yeah yeah i mean you're you're holding yourself at a distance you're yeah. wanting to see what he does and you you don't and yeah you you don't necessarily have empathy for him because of the fact that it's like he he's making this choice to get in himself into these situations. But at the same time, when things really seem to have taken a turn in the orgy sequence, you do feel, you do feel at least um, concerned for him. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, there it's like mysterious. It's like, it's like what kind of trouble is he actually going to be getting into? (laughs) Yeah. That's going that, you know, could have went so many ways. He could have been in a ditch. They, they mm-hmm. could have been uh, using him to uh, resurrect Satan. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and the fact of the matter is, it's like so. They they have they have uh, after after the party where they're they've had these various interactions with uh, yep. possible uh, romantic or sexual suitors. Um, they, the next day they're basically going about their day. And then that night they are gang stoned and they get into this argument on the account of Alice basically, um, questioning him about, you know, where he went as far as with the girls that he was with. And they get into this argument that leads to Alice telling him this fantasy about a naval officer, which is which again is probably some of the best acting Nicole Kidman's ever done. The way she just delivers that, the way she tells that story and the way, she, the, the way she moves in the scene is just great. Yeah, and the the yeah, the music is phenomenal. Yes. Uh, it, it's it's one of my favorite soundtracks in a Kubrick film, actually. I love the use it's of so- the waltz, I love the use of the piano, I love the orchestral mute i love the score that we hear i just everything it like with like with other kubrick films it's like the music has a very specific purpose to it and doesn't necessarily it's even if it wasn't directly written for that part that part of the film it still elicits an emotional response and that's one of the most striking things about the way Kubrick used music, and it's very much the case in Eyes Wide Shut. And uh, so Bill, he gets a call that one of his patients has passed away, and he then goes on this odyssey, uh, this journey uh, starting at the patient's house uh, with his with the patient's daughter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who basically is trying to come on to him and tells him that he, she loves him and all that stuff, even though we we know that we know through the dialogue that she's married or she's soon to be married. Yep. Uh, 
And, you know, he's he's very taken aback by this. Like, it's the one time where he really is actively rejecting a, yeah. a uh, potential uh, sexual situation throughout the entire movie. And, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I... So much of it, I, I think he's still kind of, even though we've seen him in this situation, even though we've seen him start to have these dreams about the story that his wife just told him, he's still very much in that analytical brain of yeah. being a doctor and being a caregiver. Yeah, which is great, too, because, you know, you don't want to, like, I think what was awesome about that, too, is it's, you know, it almost becomes more about this person's emotions and what they're dealing with yeah. coming to, to coming to terms. But at still the same time, it almost gives truth to a Bill, too, because he does have this opportunity and his first thing is to try to be a professional in the situation. And it's like, you, know, you can kind of, you almost kind of validate him in a sense when he's saying, no, lies, it was actually an interesting one, right? Because... She does say, tries to call him out and say that, like, they're necessarily not what they're thinking. And he's trying to tell her, no, no, that's the farthest thing from their mind. Then you have this death, and yeah. of course, all sorts of emotions, and, and it obviously it has something to do with that. But here's the girl putting, thinking of something sexual and thinking of Bill in that way. Yeah. Like, one, you see him rejecting him and acting like a professional and being truth to his word, but at the same time, with what Alice was saying was actually kind of true in the sense as well. Yeah. In a way, mm -hmm. you know? no, and and absolutely, and one of the and one of the important qualities that I I think I first read Roger Ebert's review of the movie was that basically everybody, most everybody that comes into contact with Bill, basically has a a potential romantic, you know, sexual response to him, you know, and. You know, Even you have you have the the patient's <laughs> daughter. You have Vanessa Shaw who plays a uh, call girl that he goes and yep. you know they very much almost do have have a moment, but they also have a different moment. They have a more tender moment. I mean, yeah. it's really the most tender moment he has with it's it's one of the most tender moments he has with any female in the entire movie. Yeah, and that kind of comes back around too when he goes back to her. Yeah, and, and that's like the roommate was the roommate's like, oh, you were so sweet, blah blah blah. There's that kind of all that kind of passing on and, and being an, a, an impression of him. Mm -hmm. And then I think after that, I think that's after that's when he goes to the nightclub. Yep. And yep. Uh, sees Nick play, and then Nick. Nick gets the call about a gig later on in the night that turns out to be the orgy. And yep. Bill basically is like, there's no way I'm not going to this. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, here's what you have to do. And it's like, okay, you have to do this, this, and this. How are you ever going to have this happen? So then he goes to the costume shop and uh, he has that, he's, he's faced with a completely crazy scene with yeah, the costume right. shop owner <laughs> and his daughter. There's a normal actor too, that guy. I'm always yeah. blanking on his name, but the, the guy who runs that shop, who the new guy runs that shop, because obviously he was a pay, pay was it his his old patient used to run that, but he moved yeah. away. 
you gotta get it. And he's he's just great in it. And that whole scene is just just awesome. And I I love just the I love how he goes from like zero to sixty so fast. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> blows up. Then he's back down. <laughs> oh yeah, that that is that is terrific. And then and then of course the payoff of that later is that you realize that he's he's basically pimping his daughter out. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's it's, uh, it's like wait a minute. That's not what we were. That's not what we were discussing. You know, earlier later. And again, the small connections, like him being able to buy his way in there. Yeah. Then these other guys buy their way out of another situation. So yeah. you can see how really this guy is has money on the brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> his daughter, who who that scene is wonderful too. I love the whole so he catches those guys. So he's going around looking for the looking at the costumes, looking what he needs. Yeah. And he he you know he gets distracted and he finds these guys who obviously were probably trying to make some business decision instead, our business deal, I should say, instead. Mm-hmm. And that whole moment where she whispers in his ear. And then there's just that look, and she walks away. Yeah. It's, such, it's such an awesome shot. It's like mm-hmm. I have no idea what she said to him. I don't even want to know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, love I love the. You know, for me, it's like one of the things I love, and this film does it a bit too. And we'll probably be talking about it more too. But I like. I don't necessarily need films to answer questions for me. Mm-hmm. I think life. There's just not a lot of questions that get, get answers. Yeah, and so. I, and some get left up and you can either use your own imagination or just leave it at that. And that's one of those scenes that just has it. It's just, again, shot well, it's acted well. And then you just kind of left one. You get that, that mystery is just there, yeah. which is great. Yeah. And, and uh, that, that of course leads to, and that's one of the wonderful things about Kubrick is that you, you don't really, you, he, he doesn't feel the need to spell everything out. he, he enjoys leaving a lot of loose ends. And I'm very curious if he had lived, how much he would have edited this from this movie. I don't, I feel like he probably wouldn't have edited much because there's not really, there's not really a moment that you think, Oh, well the movie didn't need this. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't know. Like there's like, even we were just talking about the small connections from whether it's, the circle of the business owner being angry and doing that, or, or every little details with, I, I don't, I don't see where you would. I mean, you know, it's one of those things too. I know from like working on movies, you think you can't cut something, and someone has a new approach. And, oh yeah, okay, it kind of works. Yeah. So maybe something, maybe it would have been just a tighter film, but it is tight, and it's yeah. the pacing is necessary. And if you start to edit that, now you're now you're messing with the pacing of the film. Mm-hmm. And I think the pacing was beautiful from the pacing of, uh, of the way they deliver dialogue from just, just the movements of everything um, yeah. that it just plays on to that whole theme of the dreamlike and, and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to imagine who, you know, we'll never know, but it's like, it's hard to imagine him doing too much with that. I would see him more, I could see him more maybe making something small that we wouldn't notice, but also working more on yeah. maybe, the score was fantastic, and I love the score. I could still see him tinkering with that because oh yeah, nothing there to tinker with. Mm-hmm. If I remember, he didn't really finish the score as much. Like I don't know how much he had. He didn't have the score completed when he mm-hmm. died. So yeah, I'm not so, sure. Yeah. So I mean, what what part of the score that's there is it? It just it <laughs> works so well, and yeah. the fact that he repeats it and re- uses it over and over and over it makes sense because yep. so much of it revolves around that dream and so much of it revolves 
or that fantasy that she had with the naval officer. And so much of it revolves around his obsessive thinking about it. Yeah. And so it makes sense that that music gets used over and over and over. And yeah, I, I mean, doing that is a type of s- storytelling motif. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. you know, it's like look at 2001 where he uses the blue Danube as far as docking sequences. I mean, oh, yeah. it's like that's a that's a motif. That's a theme they use. It's like and also Zarathustra and the same when it comes to the monolith and the yep. all the big moments of discovery in that movie. I mean, he uses music at he uses existing music as themes in his film. And I mean that's one of the most that's one of the most exciting things about his films. Um, you know, you can you can complain about the way he edits and manipulates music and you know changes the way music is, but at the same time, there's a very specific reason for it too. Yeah, I know. I say I wouldn't complain because of that. You know, it's like when you like, when I love a film, I think it's so complete. It's like hard to like how. How am I going to say to change this, do that, or this was wrong or that? And that's the one thing, too. It's like I'm very big on there's not many wrong choices. You might not like them. Yeah. But it necessarily mean it was a wrong choice. You know, he's choosing to do this to show you that and X, Y, R, whoever the director is, you know, for whatever project. I just really believe that you don't, you know, that's their option. There's not many things you do wrong. A lot of people like to say that or like to say, ah, oh, they should have done this, that, you know, which is fine and dandy and everyone does it. But, you know, it's, it's just, it'll be hard to see, like, him doing it any other way. And I, and I, and it does, like you said, the dream sequence, the, the song, I think, I think it's called In Dream on the soundtrack or something like that, or, but that use of it, because once you get the sound in there, you're, you're right back in there, you're right back in his, like you said, the repetitive, that analytic thinking and all that. And it's just, it's such a good cue and it's such a, such a good uh, technique. Yeah. And then you have the uh, piano piece that's used starting with, when he's re- when he is confronted at the orgy, yep, by sort of I don't know the tribunal or whatever it is, it is. Yeah. It it makes you you know um I always I always kind of wonder whether how much of that was maybe staged for him versus you know is that really something that they would do for anybody or was it something that was just done for his benefit to make him feel more anxiety towards the situation he was in. See, that's funny you bring it up because that's the part where, so we got, when that happens, that, and I, and, I, and I agree with you on that, and then it's when he goes back to Sidney Pollock and they, he talks, I don't believe Sidney Pollock. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe he's telling him everything true. Like, it's something like when when he's like, tell everything's fine, he's back in Seattle baning Mrs. Nick or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he, goes, he had a bruise on his eye or something like that. He's like, okay, so he had a bruise or something. I'm like, what else are you leaving out? Yeah. Oh no, and and yeah, you always you always wonder you you always wonder exactly how much that he's telling yeah. is the truth, and it's like I think that's one of the, and I that's one of the most interesting things. Now, to a certain extent, I do I I will say I do think that she genuinely died. She might have genuinely died from an overdose. Yeah, because of the fact that I mean, you know, we 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 saw at the beginning she was the hooker in the beginning in his bathroom, and so the the fact of the matter is the fact that she died of an overdose makes you 
Now, maybe theoretically, I guess it could have been staged. And yes, that's entirely possible, but it's... And then it's all... I kind of wonder that maybe that part is true, but some of the other parts aren't. But then again, but then it comes the whole idea of the link of like, yeah, that's also an easy thing to stage, right? Yeah, you exactly. Someone, like, they have a use of a, a coconut <laughs> mixture. Yeah. And, and that's my thing. But And I do think that type... You know, we're not talking about uh, gangsters here. You know, they're, they're, these are probably like a lot of elite guys. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're, they're politicians. They're probably crazy billionaire corporations they run and things like that. They would rather not cover up a murder. Right. And, and I think they would rather intimidation. Now, would I? Would they go to that level of murder to keep everything secret? Absolutely, I believe they yeah. would. But that's but still, the, the, I think the, the truth gets kind of blurred there. Well, and that's, yeah. and that's one of the things that, I mean, that that's one of the things I always wondered about is, like, I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if there were members of, like, organized crime a part of that whole cabal. I mean, yeah, I, I do think a lot of his elites, a lot of his politicians and stuff like that, but at the same time, would it surprise me if there were some actual, some members of organized crime as a part of that? No, it wouldn't. When you have politicians, usually that kind yeah, of falls. Exactly. So, <laughs> um, yeah, and and we we come to the orgy sequence, and the way the way Kubert sets it up, the the way he when Tom Cruise is entering the house, and you know the music starts up, and this sort of chant like music is starting up, and it's just really. Um, evocative and it's like then you you just see this ceremony taking place and it's just really it's it's such a striking moment and it's like it's this i i feel like you know the the promise of a you know if if you're familiar with kubrick at all this scene makes a lot of sense as far as what he would do as far as staging an orgy like this is the type of movie and if you're if you're going to talk about like the subject of sex in general, it's like it makes sense that this is the type of movie they made. Yeah, like, I think so. Especially too. if you look at you know his version of Lolita, like you know, I mean that's that's something where it's like it's it's not it's it's controversial, it's taboo breaking, but that's more for the subject matter than how he presents the subject matter. I think I remember I remembered seeing. I won't go too far on, uh, but I remember seeing Lolita feeling that way, that it was actually more the subject matter, the story idea in general was more than what how he actually yeah. portrayed everything. Which yeah. I think which I think is good because especially because what the subject matter yeah. is, it's great to go any other direction with it. But that scene where they do that ritual and eyes wide shut, it all that almost reminds me of like old master painters. Mm-hmm. Where you because they have those masks, those Victorian type of uh uh, whatever you call it, Venetian masks or yeah. whatever. Uh, and then there's just that very, those colors, like you see those reds are really rich. There's a lot of dark. It's mm-hmm. it's very like a lot of like classic uh, master painters. And even some with the idea with the sexuality and just the idea of new body, you know, you can, if you walk in any museum and you look up at the old paintings, you're going to see something with either a guy in a mask like that, some guy in a cape, a body or you know some sort of body naked but there's that kind of lighting that kind of low light feel again yeah and then and then it's just a great use of for something that has a lot of darks in it 
it's a, there's some great luscious color in there mm-hmm. and just great imagery, great framing, like from, and, um, and just the whole ritual in general, just so fascinating, like what they're doing and the way they're doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, it, it really, it's, it's something that, you know, especially now as you, as Bill walks through the orgy, it's like, you start to see more of a, you know, you know, you get to sort of get the idea of, I guess some of the proportions as far as disparity between like how many men versus how many women. Cause yeah. it's like at the beginning of that in, during the ceremony, you only see like a handful of women, but I mean, obviously it's not going to be all, I yeah, mean, yeah. maybe it's just the ones that they chose at that for that particular night or what have you Yeah, um, yeah. to be the showcase. Who knows? Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the the logistics of that scene just it fascinates me because of the fact that it's like how much of this is staged for Bill's purposes and how much of it is well what is going on and how would this be something that would you know how are how is this logistically organized on a regular basis? <laughs> yeah, but it also it's like again because we've kind of been touching on this with the them being a more high society and what was actually show and what's not show. And again, if you start thinking, you start looking into people that are like that, not necessarily people that have orgies like this. I don't know many. Just <laughs> <laughs> the idea of they have money to burn. Yeah. So getting together and paying for expensive rentals or, or you know, they bought their own thing and fancy food and wine and all that type of stuff and doing some sort of thing could also just be an exercise of killing time. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just be that, which is not the most glamorous and not the funnest way to think. Mm-hmm. Okay. But when you're thinking of that, you've got, anytime you like look into some story of some elite rich, sometimes you're just sitting there, they, they'll travel to an island somewhere and it's just a terrible place, but they're around like-minded people like them and they're just wasting extreme amount of money on something that they don't really need to. But one, they have it and they can do it. And is that a situation in this where they have the money and the time and they can do this, or is there something deeper rooted into this ritual? Yeah. Um, so he is confronted, and but he is quote unquote rescued at the last minute by one one particular woman who's tried to warn him of what of trying to get him to realize they shouldn't be here, they needs to leave, and um, so he gets out of that situation and then uh, gets home. And we have the first real scene between him and Nicole Kidman after the fight where she's told him about the naval officer. And uh, she wakes up and she's having this dream. And, uh, or she's laughing, she's having this dream. And uh, it's funny, it's like, I think there's now some people who wonder because of this dream that she's recounting to him what this dream is, it sounds a lot like the orgy. So people yeah. are sort of like wondering, well, was she there? And yeah. so I'm not sure if I necessarily believe that. I, I yeah. think it's just I think it sort of, I, I think it's, it's just a way that Kubrick is bringing their journeys together. Yep. Through and also there, is, there is that weird connection when you have with couples and something like that. 
uh, in general where there could be a, in some, I wouldn't take it past Kubrick for it to be signaled to some sort of shared experience in a, in a bizarre way. You know, yeah. you know, we're not getting to go down the rabbit hole on that, but there's all sorts of people can, you know, you have such a connection with strong connection with someone and able to like, I don't know how, what the right words are, but come up with that. Like he's him experiencing something necessarily can be felt through her. You can go through crazy yeah. the theories and things on that. Um, someone better can explain that. But I, I could see that being trying to link something up with that because also knowing Kubrick's also into psychology and things like that. Yeah. So might be reading too much into it, but you know, I've read enough things about <laughs> that. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard not to read a lot about Kubrick films and see other people's different point of views. I mean, it's like, I love The Shining. I mean, I'll admit I've seen Room 237 a couple of times. I don't necessarily believe much of anything that other people in that movie subscribe to The Shining. Yeah, but It is interesting to see how they come at the movie. But, you know, that's great about film and art in general. There's so much of it is just, you know, your own opinion. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's subjective. And that's why that's why I always get mad when people are always trying to put, like, no, that's this, that's this. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's, <laughs> you know, people hit, people experience things differently. People take things in differently. That's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. Um, but, yeah, it's always, I love, I love to see the viewpoints because sometimes you're like, where the hell are you coming with that other stuff? <laughs> on you're like oh my god how did i not see that yeah and uh and then with kubrick's like again there's so much good interpretation mm-hmm. so much room for interpretation i should yeah. say and then and then works so great that you just get you get a lot of smart people talking on it it's, it's pretty interesting mm-hmm. uh so we start the next day and if i remember i think it doesn't it start with him going to the where does it start where's the next day start of this does it? It doesn't well, you know, start right with him. Before he did that, there was that scene where um, no, maybe that was maybe I am jumping ahead too. I was thinking of the guy following him. That must be that night. No, that Wait. was yeah, that was that, that night. Was the next night, right? Yeah, that was that night. Day isn't he? He's going back to Rainbow Room, but before he goes there, he goes to see yeah, if Nick go, was there. Yeah, he goes to and see then, if Nick's yeah, there, right. and he goes to try find Nick. I, and uh, then he that leads him to his hotel with the yep. fantastic scene with Alan Cumming. Yeah, Alan Cumming's great. <laughs> and, and he he's just so good. It's like you can tell he's interested in Bill. And it's yep. like you can you can tell, but he the way he tells this story of how he how you know of Nick that night and how big guys. Yeah, took yeah. Him, you know, <laughs> took him from his room and stuff like to his room and from his room and stuff like that. It's such a good performance. It's yeah, no, that's, awesome. that's one of the great things about Kubrick. It's like you have these actors in like one or two scenes that just absolutely are instantly memorable. Yep. Yep. And Alan comes is definitely one of them. I love that scene. It's, yeah. it's like, Bill, can I call you that? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then he goes to the costume. Doctor though, right? Because it's like, like he's he's into him, and then when he finds out he's a doctor, it's like, oh, handsome and a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, and I mean that's one of the things. It's like, especially in that last second half of the movie after the orgy, he almost well in with the first scene at the costume uh, rental shop. I mean, he yeah. describes him. He says he's a doctor, but that's because of the fact that 
you know, his old patient helped, you know, yep. ran it. But <laughs> yeah, basically every, it seems like every interaction after the orgy, like he's saying, oh, I'm a doctor. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I guess to, <laughs> to show that he's not just, you know, a stalker or something like that. Or it works too. I think even with the, um, with the girl at that little diner, she yeah. played it. And I have to say, if I if I was someone working and someone came then like, oh, well, I'm a doctor. I'm like, yeah, that's great. Can't wait. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but then he has that whole thing where, where Bill was pretty smart in the saying, well, I got some information and she, I yeah. think he needs to know it now. And that's like, what do you do that? You got to be like, all right, now he's at this hotel. Yeah. Like, yeah, and then oh, they go to the costume shop to return oh. the costumes, and uh, the mask is missing, and. Yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting because of the fact that you know the mask shows up later, so it's like you wonder, it's like did who who got the mask out? Was it somebody? Yeah. What was it? You know, did somebody break in? Was it Nicole Kidman that got the mask out? Or kid you know, it. huh? Did the kid find it? You know what I mean? Yeah, they exactly. Play <laughs> but uh, yeah, so and then we see the the. Uh, you know what always me on that? So there's the, it actually was the night before, and he goes in, and he's drinking a Budweiser. And I go, you're a doctor, and you have all this money, and you're drinking Budweiser. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they got the, either wrapping up the Van Gogh gift, they go, I, like, yeah. I feel like I'd be like a, a import type of guy. <laughs> but, uh, and then you have the, uh, the wrap-up of the scene with the businessman and the daughter, where it's like, <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm we sure. came to an arrangement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever need anything, good doctor. Yeah. Anything at all. <laughs> and yeah, that, that actor is fantastic. And it's like he, he was actually in uh he was actually in Mission Impossible 2 the next was year. He in so many things. And yeah, he's he one was, of those he was I, he was in, I forget him and he pops up and every time I see him, I'm like, yeah. that was a great performance. Mm-hmm. It's just awesome. Yeah, and then uh, so after the costume shop, he costume shop. He that's when he goes back to. I think he, he goes to his. Well, he goes to his office at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he it's after that, and then he goes. He's great, to, he's a great shot of. Not only does he have an old school computer, but he's got a computer where it takes a damn floppy disk. <laughs> You know, technology had not evolved yet. It's like yeah. one of my the one of my first scripts they ever wrote was saved on a floppy disk. <laughs> <laughs> and and then then after then after that he starts to follow up on he first he goes back out to the house. Yep. And that's where he's warned uh, again. And uh, then after that, I think he goes back into, or he goes home after that. Yeah, I think that's where. Yeah, yeah, that's where he comes home, and that's where kind of. I think I think the second warning was not. Where is it? Sidney Pollock after that? Sidney Pollock has to be after that. He's isn't yeah, he like Pollock's near the end because it's after yeah. he finds out about the. Uh, it's after he finds out about the hooker. Yeah, um, and, then, and then he's and then he goes to his office for a little bit, and that's when Sidney Pollock calls him about coming over to his house, and then uh, then they have that scene. 
which is again great scene. Yeah, I love. I love. It's another scene. I love the lighting. I love how they have all the available light used. That room is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Library, pool table, and I love Sidney Pollock's. Um, well, I love it again. Dialogue is great too. Twenty-five-year-old Scotch. I'll send you over a case. No. Yeah, <laughs> send you over a case. It's like thousands of dollars. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Um, I love the little movements, Paul. Like the, you know, you tell he's nervous the way he's rolling the ball, the, the cue ball back or the eight ball, whatever it yeah. was. And the way he's just does little movements that you can just tell he's nervous to break in this to, to Bill and trying to do it. But again, good dialogue. And that's where, again, again, part of the beauty and part of it, I like it, but where things get blurred is because I'm just not trusting him so much on, on everything he's saying. Like you said, uh, maybe yeah. that the beauty queen did die from an overdose. <laughs> Helped with that overdose. <laughs> uh, maybe Nick is home safely with a couple. You know, obviously, someone like Nick does that. You, you know, you're going to have to expect he's going to get roughed up a little bit. Or yeah. was he just up? Did he really make it? You know, those are all questions that play in my mind, and I'm fine with them still bouncing mm-hmm. around. Oh yeah, yeah. And that's that's one of the and Sidney Pollock. Sidney Pollock's such a fantastic actor. Like he he's a good director, but he's a really fantastic actor, and uh, it it helps have somebody. He's so natural from the camera, and it's like it's not too many actors slash directors that can that you can say that about. I mean, he he was definitely one of them, and it's good good timing, good delivery, yeah. Just and he has a good presence too, you know. I, I, I like an act when he's, you know, the only being older too. But I always like, I like the yeah, he's got actors with a lot of expression in their face, and I think Tony Pollock has that as one of those faces that can tell a story. You know, he's got a lot of he's older, he's got a lot of line in the face. But I don't know, I just he's got he just he's got his great look. And he was fantastic in that. Yeah, and then uh, throughout the uh, second half of the movie, after the uh, scene at the house you that's when you start to see somebody following him and it's like you wonder you you know you wonder if it's just to keep an eye on him then you have the follow-up scene at the uh call girl's apartment with the with the roommate who tells him you know it's like yeah she really appreciated how sweet you were you know and uh but she also she also reveals the fact that the call girl is hiv positive so. And it's like, and then a dodge of a bullet too, because yeah, <laughs> like happens in there. Well, but it just the uh, yeah, that's a crazy scene too. And then that apartment, man, that apartment's crazy with the with the uh, bathtub right there in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that that is a small apartment. <laughs> like that's a yeah, that is a really. I know good apartment. New York. That's like you know you'll find those in New York, man. Mm-hmm. And then they're probably they're probably charging like three times as much as they should. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at least. Yes. Um, <laughs> so and then we then after after the scene with Sidney Pollock, we we he finally comes back home and he sees Nicole Kidman lying on the bed with the mask on yep. the pillow, and it's like. It it really it startles him. He she wakes up and then he starts to confess everything. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah, you see you see that uh, expression on her face after she's after he's told Great her everything look. and falling uh, and still yeah. kind of holding back and she has like a cigarette. It's just wonderfully framed and the look she gives is just awesome. And then you have the uh, final scene, which I remember Ebert thinking was very 
out of place and very not really the way the film should have ended it in the toy store with their daughter. And uh, I mean, I, I always liked that ending. I was, too. It, it, it was such an interesting way of ending the movie. I thought so too. I thought that actually made sense because it's all coming together. They're with the family. They're doing that again. It's, there's the distance and it's coming back and it's her last line, which I know a lot of people didn't like either. You know, he's like, what should we do? And she goes, let's, let's fuck. Yeah. No, I mean, all she says is fuck. Because like, he says is fuck. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then I just like, it's the perfect thing. Cause that's what I was trying to kind of say in the beginning as well is again, a lot of times people just jump the gun on something sexual, mm. but ha- making love is a way of connecting, you know, it's just yeah. healthy relationship. It's a way of connecting. And it's like, after going through all of this and even, you know, how do you rebuild that and mm. put better way, but then to connect clearly they're both have sexual repression yeah. and you know, they, they've had this distance. So coming together like that, I think, is a beautiful thing. And I, I always that is that is like one of my favorite ways, as one of my favorite endings in a film. And I'm like, that's perfect. Everything with what yeah. happened, that is all that needed to be said. And that was the right thing to be said at that moment. Yeah. No, and, and, and you're you're absolutely right. It's about, it's about bridging that disconnect that these characters have had yeah. throughout the movie. And it's like you, you, you feel like, okay, they're going to be okay after this. You know, yeah. which seems it and I think part of the reason so many people were off put by it is because that feels like a more optimistic ending than you're expecting from Kubrick because like he doesn't really cater in happy or satisfying endings where it's like oh everything's gonna be okay but you know if he didn't do that and say it was a sadder ending but then you have all these other questions that weren't answering. Yeah. And I think by wrapping them up and letting them kind of come full circle, these other questions that loom and the mystery of it just becomes that just fun mystery. And just, and then, it, then it, I just think you can kind of allow for a lot of that, allow for a lot of questions not to be answered because you do have that, that little package where you've kind of got these characters taking the full circle. Mm-hmm. So they see their arc and their arc gets completed. And I think I think by doing that, it really allows a lot of the other aspects of the film to shine. Oh yeah, no, I I think it's absolutely the right way of ending the movie, and I I think the the way the way he ended it was really the best way to end it. And it's like I the the it is a shame that he it's a shame that he died after in the making as he was finishing this up because it's like I do wish he had been around to make more movies, but at the same time, we, A, we wouldn't have gotten Spielberg's version of AI. I don't think Spielberg would have had the motivation to make AI, which is one of my favorite films. I like AI a lot. And also, it's, it's interesting to wonder what type, and it's something that I, uh, I thought about recently, who was I? I was talking to a couple of other filmmakers about a film that they did uh, that was heavily influenced by AI. And it's like, I couldn't help but think, or Eyes Wide Shut, I mean. And I couldn't help but think uh, what type of career was waiting for Kubrick after Eyes Wide Shut, if he had lived. It's yeah. Like, it's like, because he really would not, I don't know that he would have necessarily fit in 
the studio system as it exists now. And that's the other thing, though. Would he still got the benefits of it, though? Like, yeah. for example, like, Scorsese seems now not to be getting the benefits of the of the studio, which yeah. then you say, okay, well, if we're comparing that to Kubrick, maybe maybe that that is his point too. But I think Kubrick still had it, so he would have had he would have had some sort of spillover. You know what I mean? Like if he said in five years was he seventy when he died, so if he was like seventy five to make the next film, say, yeah. still think they might have been because they're so far apart and he is who he is, he might have still got one or two more chances with that system. Yeah. I think. But, and I just see someone like Scorsese for the longest time. He's one of those guys too, that was in that kind of step. Just the, the fact that like he can go to a studio and he can make his type of film. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's not many guys that are allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and Kubrick is clearly one of them. Yeah. Uh, I hope that there's some sort of grandfather in for him, but you know, hopefully they have some sort of honor. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, then, and then, you know, you look at somebody like Terrence Malick, who really hasn't made a film for a major studio since I think the new world, like every one, of, every other one of his films, like tree of life was Fox searchlight. Oh yeah. So, um, so really he hasn't made, I mean, and I mean, I think somebody like Fox searchlight certainly would have given, Kubrick the freedom that he wanted to make a movie, even if he didn't necessarily have the budgetary means to make the types of movies he had been making, he certainly would have had the freedom. Would he be willing to do that? That would have been the other thing too. Would, you yeah, know, that's, that, that's, that's the other question. And I, you know, you look at someone like uh, Coppola too. Or I want to say it started with Youth Without Youth, where it's basically funded by his wine company. Yeah. He kind of just says, fuck the studio. I just want to make art and all that. Now, you can argue the caliber of him, obviously, you know, Coppola from the, the Conversationist, The Godfather, Apocalypse Now, the guy's made insane classics. Even with that, if you want to argue consistency between all of them, he might he might be a little, have a little bit more gaps in between. But there's someone, too, with the, at the end of his career, uh, has a wonderful wine business and just yeah. decided, hey, you do this this way, I'm cutting you out, screw you. And mm-hmm. I think people, there's some mixed results from it. I actually one of the rare people that like youth, but I love youth. <laughs> and I love, uh, I don't know if you've seen Tetro. No, I haven't. I haven't oh, seen either. Oh. I haven't seen either of his recent movies. I need to. Tetro's one. Tetro's the one I would say go see for. It's black, all black and white shot in um, Argentina. And it's about this Italian American family that moves there and the rivalry between them. But it's just great storytelling. Um, you want to hang out in Argentina after. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And it's just, it's just a great, it's a cool film. And it's one of those films that it's like, I feel like it's an art film. But you can show it to people that don't really like art mm-hmm. film and they can still get it because it's just a, it's a great story and a human story of yeah. like rivalry, stuff like that. And a uh, great film. Oh, we digressed a little bit too much. But, <laughs> but it would have been interesting to see what Kubrick could have done, man. Or would he have done anything too? You know, yeah. like, like Full Metal Jacket, that's 12 years. Yeah, we five, so it was years, five years. Yeah, I mean, it was five years between Barry Lyndon and The Shining. It was seven years be- between The Shining and Full Metal Jacket. It was 12 years between Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut. So, yeah, I mean, it is it is a valid question. Would he have done anything else? And it's like, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's, it's interesting to think if he would have picked up AI after that. Because, I mean, I know that was one of the things they was looking at. And it was a- Napoleon. He always wanted to do a Napoleon film. Yeah. 
Yeah, which I don't I don't know that you could have pulled that off with yeah. the way that the studios started to uh the the way the studios started to do things. I don't know if he would have necessarily gotten the funds for that. He would have had to get independent funds, I think. Yeah, because that's also going right. That early two thousands kind of a start of superhero, would you say? Oh yeah. Because I mean you had X yeah, because you had X Men, you had Spider Man, and I mean, then you have the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which yeah, yeah. the biggest hits, Harry Potter, and all that stuff. So, I mean, it's entirely possible that like a studio like Warner Brothers will have said, "Okay, well, we're making a lot of money with this. Let's put money into what yeah. you have next." I mean, especially with the long relationship they had with Warner Brothers, that's entirely possible. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, the way the way genres got prioritized and the way that adult filmmaking has sort of gone by the wayside and has basically almost all exclusively been relegated to independent films as well, with the exception of the occasional prestige film, um, it's, it's, it is interesting to see where he will have gone. Now, did, this, did he get number one in the box office for this? Yes, it was number one its opening weekend. So, as we know, in the studio setting, that also speaks volumes. Yeah. So so that could have been a factor in continuing something or getting something else greenlit just for the simple fact that he hit number one that, in that opening week. Yeah. As they like, like, they like to look. I love how they like to look at it as, oh, well, it's number mm-hmm. one this first week. And they could freaking bank. And they'll be like, oh, we'll give him money. It's like, yeah. And then, and then you'll see a film that doesn't do well in number one. And then it will pick up sales after. And I'll do crazy on DVDs and go, that doesn't matter. Because what's money in your pocket, isn't it? It shouldn't matter. Well, I I mean, that's what what happened with Austin Powers. Like, that was was Austin Powers. Like, Austin Powers was not a huge hit in theaters. The first one wasn't, but found its audience on video. Yeah. And so then when the second one came out, like, it was this gargantuan hit wasn't a terribly good movie, but it was a gargantuan hit. When I first got a DVD player, Austin Powers was the first DVD I put in. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the color of his shirt. I was like, whoa, that's popping. Yeah. <laughs> it was um, that. And actually, when I first got a Blu-ray, it was Godfather. It was the scene where, uh, I, forget, I forget the guy who's the, who's the band, who plays the singer. And he's at the wedding. Oh, yeah. and, he come, and I was looking at a tree in the background going, that tree has so much detail. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. The scene, you're looking at all this mm-hmm. technology. Now we don't even. Now we just stream shit. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I I still do physical media because I I don't trust that my streaming is going to be, you know, forever. Uh, yeah, I can choose now. Yeah, like I, I should. I have a Blu-ray copy of Ice Watch. I yeah. I mean, it's been you know, it's been interesting. It's it hasn't been surprising to see that the movie has grown in reputation as more people have gone back to it or discovered it and realized it's like, okay, this is much better than there's more to this. Like every Kubrick movie, it's like the reputation has grown. And that seems to be the case with every film he's made. Never had a straight cross the board. This is a great film when it comes out. Oh yeah. Like like who, I forget who it was. It was, wasn't, it was a famous critic in the 70s or something it was 2001 came out and she said it was an unimaginary piece of oh, shit or something pauline kale like who the hell how do you see that in- <laughs> i'm not liking it i can i can get i can i can agree with i mean i love it but i mean yeah i'm with you on that you have that opinion and if you're coming up with something it's not clicking right how do you say unimaginable? <laughs> yeah 
biggest jump cut in history. What is it? He's got a biggest time lapse, right? Yeah. Of the uh, eight going all the way up to the spaceship and yeah. you have a thousand years in between, which is awesome. <laughs> 2001's easily my favorite Kubrick, and it's the one that's the most transformative for me personally. Um, yeah, I, I've, I, I, Ever ever since 2000, 2001 and The Shining are my favorite ones. Um, I think Eyes Wide Shut is probably third. Uh, my Eyes Wide and Clockwork Orange, because Clockwork Orange was the film. I remember I was a teenager, and I was just throwing some movies on. I was just throwing TV on, and I had like a little Nerf hoop thing. I'm just yeah. messing with it. And then I remember I keep looking back, and I kept looking back, and then I slowly just sat down. <laughs> I just quit. I had no idea what I just saw. Yeah, <laughs> and it, and, you know, it was just insanely original. Yeah, and it was a different world. And I, I you know, who knows? Maybe that planted the seed that made me want to make films. I, I oh, that's not true. I had a lot of those moments, but it's just one of those great film moments yeah. that you, have, you know, watching film and having this just even if you're not really connecting with it, there's there's this. I mean, I guess it is a connection, but it's like mm. yeah. I, mean, it's, I, I think everybody. I, yeah, everybody eventually, like, I, I feel like every, Kubrick is one of those filmmakers where eventually most people who are very serious about film will, they'll, they'll watch their work, his work, and, you know, even if they don't, even if they don't instantly connect with it as something that they love, it's something that they have that leaves an impression. Yeah. And something that uh, very much is one of those experiences that they won't forget and they may revisit later on. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, this is, and you know, like, like we said, started to say like eyes wide shut, like the shining, like 2001, like clockwork orange, Barry Lyndon, uh, full metal jacket, basically everything he's ever done. Eventually people come around to it and realize, okay, there's a lot more going on here than maybe we first thought. Yeah, you know, and one, you know what's funny too is uh, I like Barry Lyndon. The first time I watched it, I didn't care for it. <laughs> I remember, and I love all his films. And I said, I gotta. I was like, why didn't I? And I remember when I watched it, there was people like my house, and there was a lot of you know, I was filming a lot of people like coming over in and out of your house. And um, I think I remember me and my girlfriend went to. They had special series they do every once in a while at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Mm -hmm. And then we went to go see it, and I remember just being like. I love this. What I like. <laughs> oh, I I had I think my biggest experience with that with Kubrick was Doctor Strangelove. I remember watching, I remember watching that with my grandfather one time when he came to visit us in from Ohio, and I I just looked at him after that movie and I'm like, this this is supposed to be a comedy. Like I didn't get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't get the movie, and it wasn't until I saw it a few years later that it's like. Okay, I see where this is going now. I I I I'm on this film's wavelength. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's yeah. like, and now it's one of my absolute favorite, one one of my favorite Kubrick movies. Oh, that's a great movie. Easily one of the best ones he's ever done. Um, yeah, it's it's a shame that you know it it is a shame that we lost him when we did. Uh, and it is interesting to see why. And it will have been interesting because it will have been interesting to see what he will have done after this and how his career will have done. If, if it not, did commence. Even if it's not movies. Like, like um, I know it's arguable that The Shining was the first to use Steadicam. Yeah. But the idea that he's bringing that on board very early. Mm -hmm. You know, 
Barry Lyndon was one where they started using lenses. I want to say it gets lower than a, a 0.1 f-stop or whatever, a t-stop, whatever they're using, which is just basically opening that camera up so you lens up so you can shoot at candlelight. Yeah. No one, and now, now we can get lenses that are, that are very capable of doing that and cameras that are really good in the light. But, you know, he was one that was doing that. I remember hearing him always the obsession of things, right? Like going through lenses. Like I think you'd be using Zeiss lenses, which is world famous. Yeah. Some of the best. And then he would take like eight or 10 of them and he would find the best one and go, which, which some people try to do that nowadays, but now if you're using newer lenses, they're kind of punched out machines. Right. Back then it was more of a handcraft involved. So they could be a variation difference. And Zeiss, I can't imagine it, but you know, it's possible. Um, but just that type of detail and the innovation in a lot of stuff, like if he wasn't making films, would he have yeah. been that kind of mentor? Or would he still he's gonna you know he's not gonna stop. I mean, the guy literally did work till today yeah. he died. And I have to think, even if it was him picking up like I know he was a photographer when he first started, yep, you know, magazine or something like that. He he has photos, which actually if anyone was out there and they look at some of the old Kubrick's photographies, again, you see great framing, yeah, a great eye. And would he have gone back to that? You know, just because he was too old, you know, being old. I don't Who knows? But you have, you can't imagine that guy being separated from cinema or making in, in any way. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you very much for uh, joining me on this. Uh, I think we've got, um, I think we've got eight millimeters, another film that we've talked about from this year. Oh, yeah. Um, I will definitely keep you posted when we, uh, when we get that. But uh, uh, thank you very much for joining me on this. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to thank Christopher Denunzio for joining me tonight to discuss uh, one of the biggest, most anticipated movies of two, 1999 uh, in uh, Eyes Wide Shut. It's a movie that both of us have loved since it came out, and uh, that affection still remains. And uh, it's always good to talk to people about the movie, and it's funny, this is... Uh, actually, second time I've had a chance to talk about the movie with a filmmaker. The previous one uh, was pr with Prince and Holt and uh, Brian Ackley in uh, our 2050 interview, uh, which was um, a few weeks ago. And I hope you check that out as well as Bitter Film, which uh, you can see the inspiration in Eyes Wide Shut as you uh, watch that movie. Um, we're going to be continuing with uh, some more comedy as well as uh, some some of the other uh, big movies of 1999 as the uh, class of 99 continues. For now, uh, hit me up on Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema um, to contribute and help... Uh, and uh, you'll get extras like early access reviews to a lot of movies that include uh, movies from the 1999 movie year uh, that I'm going back and doing print review, written reviews of as well as the uh, podcast. Uh, also hit us up on YouTube at Sonic Cinema Podcast as well, obviously, as www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you very much. This is Brian Scuttle, and I hope you enjoyed. Thank you.